On this episode of The Jukebox, we sat down with Sonia Atalai, an associate professor in the anthropology department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She researches indigenous archaeology and heritage and conducts community-based research, emphasizing the need to collaborate with local communities in research partnerships. We were able to sit down with Sonia after she gave a talk to the Department of Anthropology at Brown. We spoke about how to make research more accessible and relevant, and her ongoing collaborative comic book series on repatriation called Journeys to Complete the Work. My name is Sonia Atalai. I'm an associate professor at UMass Amherst. Um, my spirit name is Boshking Nungokwe. I'm Nishnabe Ojibwe. So can you trace for us uh, your interest in the past and what inspired it and what led you to um, understand that the past is something that one can study? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I kind of have two paths that intersect or maybe crashed into each other in a sense. Um, one of them was my fourth grade teacher uh, who I remember I was kind of done with work early and I think she got sick of me asking her questions and kind of bugging her. So she gave me some books and said, here, read these. And they happened to be about archaeology. I really don't even know. It was more classical archaeology, you know, Egypt and Greece and Rome and stuff. I don't know why she had those laying around, but um, she gave me those to read, and I thought it was amazing and fascinating that there was this thing called, like, a thing called archaeology. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I started talking about it more and I got older and really um, thought about it, uh, I was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, and I started thinking about, whoa, what do I, what electives do I want to take? And I saw, there it was again, the word archaeology. So in that sense, when I started to talk to elders at home about archaeology, um, yeah, that was not a good, <laughs> good response. You, you want to do what? And then started realizing how um, I, was, I had in my mind those books that my fourth grade teacher had given me and not realized uh, the other side of archaeology, which is this is somebody else's heritage that... Um, you know, what does that mean to be studying or, or digging that up? And so I think that was where I hit a crossroads and those two kind of worlds met. Mm -hmm. Did you have any particular uh, people who mentored you, who you look to as role models? Yeah, I have a, a kind of funny story that comes to mind about that. Um, we were always running powwows when I was at the University of Michigan, and elders would come in after the powwow. I ran a nightclub <laughs> there. Wow. Um, it was called the Nectarine. Shout out to the Necto. Um, a 2,000-person dance club, and it was super busy, and I was running this place. And the whole powwow crew would come over, and I'd get to see all these people I hadn't seen in a really long time. And it was on the campus, the University of Michigan campus. And so it was the weirdest place to have this, like, disco music, you know, RuPaul and whatever, like, blaring in the background and be talking with people about archaeology because that it, we were on the campus. It's where it always came up. And I remember having this time where two of my elders, George Martin and Sid Martin, and they were saying, like, well, what are you going to do with this archaeology thing, you know? And I 
I said, it just came out of my mouth. I'm going, I'm not going to do that stuff like what you think of archaeology. I'm going to go in archaeology and I'm going to change it. And I hadn't thought that through, but it came out of my mouth. And I look back at that now thinking that was a moment really formative for me thinking like, this is a practice like anything else. It's a way of doing things and a way of thinking and it can be changed. We can do this differently. And for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, what did you want to change about archaeology? I just thought that it should involve the people whose heritage and culture is being studied, um, not just after archaeologists do the work, inviting them to come and see what we dug up, look what we found, um, but really in a formative way from the beginning where communities are helping to formulate the research questions, um, where they're working together with you to write grants, where they're out in the field maybe learning technologies and techniques that help build capacity in communities. So for me, I thought of archaeology as a way to build capacity, um, a form of social justice, and also as a way of healing. And um, a lot of my work now is thinking about how reclaiming tangible and intangible cultural heritage can, um, and archaeology is part of that, can really lead to healing in communities. Mm -hmm. What do you think you might be doing with your life had you not gone into archaeology? Oh, my goodness. Well, originally I went to school because I wanted to do, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I wanted to go into medicine. And I kind of find that really funny because in the last year, as I've been doing research about NAGPRA and archaeology as healing, healing for communities, mm. um, I kind of said to my husband, I think I've in some ways come full circle, <laughs> right? I'm back to that piece about how do we heal our communities? How do we heal ourselves? And when I'm talking about our communities, I don't just mean Native communities. I mean, we really have a belief, and I'm taught by my elders, that the ones who studied our ancestors and dug them up and all these exploitative research practices that happened in the past, those people need healing too. And I think we as a, as a world are coming to some of that. Mm -hmm. You know, my friend Judy Dow talks about us going through the narrows as the climate's changing, as we're in crisis. I think there's a lot of um, recognition that that healing has to happen. So I guess in some ways, maybe I'm coming around to that pediatrician I thought I might be. I love that answer. Yeah. Are there any aspects or uh, fields or sub-disciplines of archaeology you'd be willing to confess just aren't your thing? Well, certainly kind of bioarchaeology. Okay. I mean, I, I, I understand that, and I'm even thankful that there are people who can study skeletal remains for help when that's needed. Um, with NAGPRA, but yeah, I mean, even at Chaltalhuyuk, when those aren't my ancestors, I just, my, my own beliefs and spiritual practices wouldn't allow me to be in that space when those are being excavated. Sure. So that's not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> Was it ever a question about the types of places you would be doing archaeology in? You know, for me, I used to joke and say, I'm going to go over there and dig up their remains, their bones. <laughs> I, I don't do that. But um, I had that intellectual curiosity that was sparked in, by a fourth grade teacher. I wanted to know, like, where did these objects come from? Who made them? What were they thinking about? How far had they traveled? All those cool things that archaeologists love and get them passionate about their work. 
I had that too. And that's what led me to work in Italy and then in Turkey later. Um, I definitely had that and wanted to explore it. And it wasn't until later that I thought, you know, I really want to do, I didn't want to touch American archaeology because to me it was digging up remains. Um, and it wasn't until later through my work in NAGPRA that I started exploring ways of doing archaeology differently here uh, in North America and then got into things like comics and trying to reach broader audiences mm -hmm. with that work seemed to be the real key. I want you to talk a little bit about what NAGPRA is, just for people who might be listening who aren't sure. And I also wanted to ask, you know, I was born a year before NAGPRA was enacted. And so um, I, I'm curious about what really changed um, practically. Like, how different was the practice of um, archaeology before NAGPRA? Um, NAGPRA is, stands for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990. Um, it's a federal law that requires any museum, and a museum can count as, for example, a, a university department if they hold human remains or sacred objects or objects of cultural patrimony. They have to do inventories of those, and they have to let the National NAGPRA office that's based in D.C. know about those. Um, and then once that inventorying is done and those lists and things are have been um, filed, um, work has to be done to determine what the cultural affiliation of those items are, and then once that is done, they are required to be repatriated, which is just returned to the um, community of origin. So that's the basis of it. It's mm -hmm. about returning materials that had been excavated, and not all of them were excavated. Um, as I said, some of them could be sacred objects right. or objects of cultural patrimony that were collected by collectors. Right. Um, there's also a provision of the law that talks about new excavations and how we handle um, excavation of burials. Um, what was the second part of the question? Ah, you're young. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that blows me away. Um, I can tell you it was really different. Things have changed tremendously in the past even, I, I think, five to ten years. But looking back, um, when I went to graduate school, and I don't want to give too much detail about this because, you know, people can figure it out. Um, I went to my first grad program and ended up leaving because I just couldn't take the way archaeology was talked about. I had a professor who my very first semester in grad school stood at the front of the class, and in the lesson on NAGPRA, because it was brand, brand new, said, I, this is a quote, I don't give a rat's ass about the manifold insecurities of Indians in this country, and I don't have to. That's what he said about NAGPRA. It's just, you know... It, it, it literally was like that's what we were being taught, and not everywhere, and not everybody thought that. I don't mean that, but the fact that someone felt, you know, I don't give a rat's ass about NAGPRA. I mean, I don't have to, is what people, you know, a faculty member said and taught. And modeling behavior. Yes, yeah. that this is just, you know, some ridiculous thing. Things have changed so tremendously, and I think the narrative, and I, I talked about this earlier today in a talk that I gave, um, the narrative was 
NAGPRA, they're going to come in and take it all out, you know, back up with the trucks and carry the boxes all away and empty out the museum shelves. And with that mindset, the model or the, the metaphor was NAGPRA is going to shut down all research. It's going to shut, it's closing the door to research. And what, in fact, the next NAGPRA comic we're doing is the metaphor is NAGPRA opens the door to research. Mm. And that's how I see it, that NAGPRA, want, it's about relationality and relationships. And once you build those relationships with communities, it can lead to the most incredible, amazing research you never would have thought of. Let's talk about the comics. I never would have come up with comics and a traveling community theater troupe to learn about archaeology and do plays about it with local community members. They came up with that. And that's what happens when you bring, in my tradition for Anishinaabe people, we talk about braiding knowledge, bringing different forms of knowledge together, and they complement each other. And I think that's the way forward when we think about creating new knowledge, that we we braid that knowledge together. And that's what I see NAGPRA is, opening the door to all sorts of research you never even knew could be out there. Mm-hmm. And that's real change that's happened since 1990. Wow. So this winter break, I did a short internship at the Brooklyn Children's Museum, and the collection there has some NAGPRO objects. And the collection manager was very keen on making sure that local Brooklyn high schoolers got internships that were paid at the museum to do um, research on where these objects should go. So I guess my question for you is, what role do you think that youth can have in adding new perspectives? Um, and And in what ways do you think local communities have the most impact on the research being done? Well, I think that's amazing work to be doing. Um, First of all, just that youth even would know what NAGPRA is, right? It really puts a different spin on what is a museum, right? Who, Who, what does it hold? Whose objects are these? Who is this, my cultural heritage? Um, do I have a right to access that? All those things to get young minds thinking about that, I think is amazing. Um, and I think that it's really important because it can connect local kids, especially, to land, to ask the question of, wow, where did these come from? Whose land is this? And it, it always helps, I think, to get people thinking about place. What's been erased from the place, presence and absence, those kind of big theoretical questions that we love to think about as anthropologists and archaeologists as well, um, having them start out early like that is is really, really important so that they don't get to college level and say, what, there's still Indians around? Or, you know, who, whose land is this? There were tribes here. I thought all the Indians were dead. Like, I really get people who say that. So I think that starting people off early thinking about these concepts and really um, the central role that museums can play is fantastic. And um, what role do you think that the comics that you make have in achieving that? Yeah, I would love to take credit for those comics myself, but um, that came out of community-based work that I did in Turkey, actually. Um, And it was me going to people in local villages around the site of Çatalhöyük and saying, what do you want to learn about this site and how do you want to learn it? Um, I had all sorts of cool ideas that I could have done education-wise, but I wanted to hear from the ground up, you know, community-based. What do you want to learn and how? And they talked about comics and community theater. 
Um, and so we ended up, that is where the comics came from uh, originally. And I had the illustrator who worked on the site who was illustrating artifacts. And I said, hey, local people want comics to learn about the site. And could could you do that? He said he'd never done it, but um, he agreed he'd do it. And so we actually worked with people in the community to decide which stories were going to be told. Um, they helped with different parts of the process so that there was capacity building and they could actually learn about that process. Um, and we produced a whole series of comics. So that's where the idea got stuck in my head. And then I was on the National NAGPRA Review Committee. Uh, there's a board that oversees compliance with that federal law. Um, I was appointed initially by uh, President Bush, and then I was appointed for the Obama administration as well. And in my role on that committee, I kept thinking, like, this law is complicated. There's so many nuances. There's problems to it. We need some kind of, like, what I call knowledge mobilization, not just making new knowledge, but moving it, getting it out there to places that it needs to be mobilized to. And I thought, hmm, what are some methods that I know to do that? And started reading up and took me right back to that time at Chaltalhuyuk and um, decided to, at that time, about 10 years ago, to do NAGPRA comics. And then eventually hooked up with my friend and colleague, John Swagger, who was the illustrator from Chaltalhuyuk, and he's the one who did the illustrations on those. So, um, and, and this is for multiple audiences. I think it's it takes an indigenous way of thinking and how you take knowledge and share it. Our brains remember stories. We're natural storytellers, all humans. And so I thought this would be kind of a cool way to reclaim that way of storytelling, but also do it in a, in a visual um, framework that people would get really interested in and that youth would be engaged in. So I now have these, um, I call it the Rich Institute, Reclaiming Indigenous Cultural Heritage Institute, where I'll travel around and work with an indig indigenous community. We spend a week working uh, with their youth and elders. We walk the land. We reclaim stories, knowledge of the land, of archaeological places, in their language. And then we put them, have the youth make comics uh, about and tell, retell those stories. Um, and I'm working on animation and virtual reality pieces, too. So all of that is about reclaiming and, um, and moving knowledge. We'll definitely link to those comics uh, in our show notes so that people can cool. check them out. Are there representations of the past that you study in the media, TV, books, um, movies, that you think are particularly awful? Uh, I think there's loads of them. Um, and I think the thing they have in common, for me at least, about... Um, I wasn't going to say about Native people, but in fact, it's not just Indigenous people. It's about the past in general, that it's somehow the the link between up to the present is missing. And I, that's what I wish were there, were shown, that piece about, you know, so do the people from Chaltolhiu, it's a 9,000-year-old site, do the people living in Kuchikui in these little villages around there, maybe they're not the direct descendants, but they still have that connection. And I think that movies could do so much to just simply show that connection. That, to me, is what would be awesome um, if that's what we're missing. And that piece about then looking to the future, um, what, what comes from this? What, what's the future of studying the past? 
And so for something that you would like it to be like, what would you like to see represented? So um, I just recently took my kids to see the Black Panther. Mm. Amazing. Mm. And we walked out and my young boys looked at me and I said, you know what? We need an Anishinaabe Black Panther. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I was meaning was not so much the, the, you know, comic book character, but that movie, um, whether it be Afrofuturisms or indigenous futurisms, there's so much out there looking at the future, speculative kind of fiction. Like, And I really believe, and I've been writing about this recently, been working on an article for about a year about this, and then I saw Black Panther and it all came together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for us to have a different vision of how it could be, you do need to think about what is that speculative fiction? What is that future world that we'd like to see? And it's much easier to try to get there when you have that vision. So something like the Black Panther, where you see it's not either the colonized or pre- or post-colonization, right? You have this time where people are living and still practicing their traditions, but they're holding super modern technology and vibranium, right? Right in their hands. And I think that that allows for people to think of people of Africa or indigenous people as modern, which we are, right? Mm -hmm. Not either the past or now we've just lost our traditions and we're something else. So that to me is super exciting. Some kind of movie that can show those things living side by side. Um, I'd I'd love to see that. Um, I spent a semester in Sydney and like one of the mural initiatives they had was like showing that like the indigenous people of Australia are modern people. They're not from the past. And like so they like featured all over bridges and like tunnels, like artwork done like in the past two or three years. And it's like we are still here. So, yeah. Yes. Have you seen on Netflix uh, Clever Man, the Clever Man series? Got to see the Clever Man series. It's based um, about Aboriginal people of Australia. And there's in, very early in the series, the scene where there's kind of a police coming after Aboriginal people. And they say, you have 50,000 years of scientific knowledge wrapped up in your stories and we want it. <laughs> and I don't love the part about them hunting down sure. Aboriginal people. But that recognition that stories, as we talked about earlier, are powerful and they're not just myths and fables. There's science in there. There's geology. There's so, I mean, so many different frameworks of indigenous science and science knowledge in those stories. And I love that about that Clever Man series that it it shows that. So you mentioned in your email to us that you're on sabbatical, working on two different books. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what those projects are? Sure. So one of them is a single authored book that I'm writing myself called Braiding Knowledge. And I've been talking a little a lot about braiding knowledge here with with you so you can have a sense of what I mean by that, bringing different forms of knowledge together, whether it be Western and indigenous forms of knowledge, whether it be community knowledge and kind of academic forms of knowledge. Um, It's a lot about thinking about how the academy could be different and how we see indigenous ways of thinking and knowing and projects, research projects with indigenous people impacting and changing the academy and making research practices better generally. Mm -hmm. So that's what that book's about. And then I'm uh, writing a book with uh, a friend and colleague that I talked about and a Beneke elder named Judy Dow. Um, She has, she's an educator 
and has been working with kids for probably 30 years doing these camps where um, she's getting them to learn, relearn the skills of walking the land and reading the land and telling their stories. And I was doing something, a similar kind of indigenous pedagogy in my classrooms with students and grad students and um, using art, art-based practices. I have my students make baskets, for example. I'm teaching a course in the fall about called Comics, Cartoons, and Communicating Research, where they take their dissertation research and they do a graphic novel That's about awesome. it. Super exciting. I can't wait to do that. But a lot of experimenting with, again, braiding together in an Ojibwe philosophy, both not just everything from the head, but bringing together knowledge from the head with doing with your hands and spiritual and emotional um, ways of knowing and engaging as well. So I try to bring that all into my classroom. When I met Judy Dow and found out she's been doing that with kids, we just said, we've got to write a book about this and what we're doing and kind of creative STEM is what we've been calling it. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited to be working on that with her. That's amazing. I uh, once had a professor who allowed us the opportunity, the option, uh, instead of a traditional seminar paper, to write a long work of fiction, which I chose. And it was incredibly difficult because it had, it still had to be well footnoted and researched and everything needed uh, to be justified based on what we know archaeologically, historically, iconographically. And so I can't imagine how much harder illustrations that would include things that, things in the background that might not be part of a written narrative that still should be accurate and... What are, what are some of the challenges that you faced trying to produce these these comics? I think the biggest challenge is students saying, I can't draw. Oh, my God, I'm so sick of I can't draw. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you can draw. That's me, too. I can't draw. <laughs> but I you do a stick figure. It does. It's not. And you'll be amazed. Like once you get that to me is the biggest challenge. Once mm -hmm. you get people past that, it's about the drawing. It's not about the drawing. Mm -hmm. It's about the storytelling. And what I found, and the reason I think comics are such a useful way to teach, is because you really have to know what your point is. With words, you can like blah, 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 all over the place. And it's with comics, you need to know really clearly what your storyline is or a, a narrative like what you had to do, a fiction, right. right? Like you're really having to think about what those main points are. Um, and I think... I've, I've seen the most amazing comics. I had a student do one on indigenous language reclamation. Total just stick figures mm -hmm. and really basic crayons, drawings. And I have faculty who are now using it to teach their undergraduate um, linguistics classes because mm -hmm. the points were so right on. She nailed it. Um, there's also some software that helps. Right. So software like Storyboard That. If you really, really don't want to draw, it allows you to easily put in backgrounds and things like that. There's other cool. Comic Life is another one where you can just take images and drag them in and then put text. And we did that for some of the uh, Turkish comics. So I had John Swagger, who did the illustrations for our comic, uh, Journeys to Complete the Work, uh, the comic about repatriation. And he came and visited with my students and did a workshop. Um, and one of the things, the simplest things he did that really had an impact, and I've now borrowed that and I've changed it a bit, but um, taking a simple piece of paper, folding it 
into fours so that when you open it, there's four quadrants of the page. And I tell students, tell me about your dissertation in four quadrants, and you can use 10 words. Try it. It is awesome because it really what's amazing is you can see how people think whether they're thinking methodological because then or are they thinking in terms of a timeline like their chapters right or are they thinking like you'll see some people say well here's the theoretical framework here's the place that I'm doing this here's the research question here's the people you get so much out of it and they get so much out of it because it shows where their thinking is with their dissertation and then it's easy from there because you take each of the four panels you do the same thing okay take another piece of paper see this one panel you just did fold it into fours tell me more about that panel four more and you do that with each of them and you keep going and then you've got a 50 page comic we now see the university of toronto press has an amazing series called ethnographic and they're literally having people do ethnographies um with graphic novels Um, We had a whole session at the AAA last year where everyone was talking about using graphic novels. Um, I'm, as I said, also doing animations and virtual reality projects and having youth work on those sorts of things. And for me, it's super cool because you can think about ways that this extends beyond archaeology. You know, you learn to use virtual reality kind of software and pop your phone into a cardboard and you're looking around they can do anything they want with that, and hopefully it inspires this love of, of creativity and, and learning. That's great. I feel like what you're doing with the comics and what you do generally with um, decolonization and indigenous archaeology, um, is this, like a, is this a, a struggle that you have in like trying to um, promote indigenous archaeology without it being sort of an end in itself? Just to make institutions feel better about themselves and pat themselves on the back? I think there is a lot of that that I see for people who do not just in archaeology, but community-based work. Um, So not everyone, of course. There's some really amazing projects. But what I tend to see is institutions loving to say, we do engage scholarship. We have, you know, community-based practices, and they love to have you do that. But then when it comes down to who are we going to keep in the academy, who gets tenure, who gets promoted, it tends not to be anything that even counts towards your tenure case. So, for example, the comic mm-hmm. that has already had thousands of right. copies printed and disseminated is on websites everywhere. People are using it to teach, and it will not count one bit towards my promotion or towards, like, a tenure case. I have tenure, but, um, you know, I made that decision long ago that right. I'm not going to work for tenure, meaning I'm not going to chase it. I'm going to do the work that I care about. I'm going to do the work that matters. I knew I needed a book or a bunch of you know, articles for tenure. And so I chose to write about the process. But I think for me, some of them, it should be about your impact. Mm -hmm. That comic will reach more people. To me, that's what we should be looking at. Um, So that is the struggle that I have, which is, again, how do we change that within the academy? And I know some institutions are thinking about that and wanting to value that to say, hey, you're doing community-based work. How do we measure that, Mm -hmm. whether it was successful or not? How do we measure the impact that that has? But I certainly think there should not be a question, is that comic scholarship? It's fully cited, like you said, with your project you had to Mm -hmm. do. And, um, you know, for now, we're forced to kind of 
navigate that by figuring out, okay, is there a journal that will publish this and send it out for peer review? So now it counts as a peer-reviewed journal article that only archaeologists will read, right? right? Versus it's at the comic book store all over the place, you know. They call me up and say, your comic's out. Can you bring more? <laughs> that, to me, That's should awesome. be the thing that counts. This reminds me of, um, I once had a professor who said that they used to write um, little blurbs about archaeology f- all the time for airline magazines. And it was either their dean or the provost came up to them and said, you have to stop wasting your time doing this. And they did, reluctantly, um, to you know work on you know, peer-reviewed journal articles. And um, I think that's, you know, that's part of the same problem. It's um, we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. Um, and want, we, we want more public engagement with our research, but then any attempt to do so is literally harmful to your career. That's absolutely right. And you know what? Universities who choose to think that way to their detriment Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I I think that we just can't waste time thinking like that anymore. Things are changing. There has been or there is. We're in the middle of what I think of as a really big paradigm shift in archaeology and in institutions more broadly where people are saying, what are they doing that for? Why are we giving taxpayer money to public institutions or even private institutions? What is this for? For them to produce an article that only four people in the world can maybe read and really understand? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're asking those questions of what does it mean to produce knowledge? And we're back to that point about knowledge mobilization. And um, I think that's really exciting to think about what might be out there and what the future is for that. It doesn't mean we're not doing rigorous right. scholarship and research, but... Um, I think we have to explore some ways that we get it out there and things like this podcast, you know, that's that's important ways of, of reaching people and getting the research out there. Yeah.